Who here remembers the WWJD craze of the 1990s? A fair amount of you. I realize that some of you weren't even born by then, and that makes me feel old. But many of you probably do remember. Many of you probably even wore the bracelets, right? I did. I'm pretty sure that I still have one or two of them lying around somewhere if I was able to dig them up. But if you have no idea what I'm talking about, WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do? What would Jesus do? It was a question that we were encouraged to ask ourselves throughout our day as a way to inspire Christ-like behavior in our lives. So a a bracelet's constant presence was supposed to prompt us to constantly ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus act in, in this circumstance? What would he do in this? As a basic ethic, using what Jesus did as an example or inspiration was pretty solid. As long as you considered what Jesus actually did according to his word. Not what you imagined he did. But, you would, um, but for a few years there, WWJD became much more than just a basic ethic of how to act. It became, a, it became an explosive fad. A status symbol. Even a fashion statement. You would see sports stars or celebrities sporting a a WWJD bracelet, and then their fans would as well. Even if you had no idea what it stood for, it was cool to wear WWJD. But I wonder how many people would have actually participated if they only knew what it entailed. Not what wearing a bracelet entailed, what following Jesus actually entailed. And this goes for both non-Christians and Christians alike. Would we follow? The phrase, what would Jesus do, originated in a classic book by Charles Sheldon written in 1896 called In His Steps. And the phrase, in his steps, originated in the Bible. Specifically, it originated in the passage in 1 Peter that we're going to study today. And this passage is not about following Jesus' steps into glamour, fame, fashion, or popularity. It's all about following Jesus into suffering, or pain, or even death. Turns out that we as Christians are indeed meant to follow and imitate the example of Christ. But that example may often look quite different than what we'd like to imagine. If you haven't yet, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter with me. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. And hopefully if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in a pew or a shelf around you. So we can look at this together. In these verses that we'll read today, we will see a vivid and honest description of what Jesus went through for us. And at the same time, we'll see what we are called to be ready to go through for him. So it's my prayer that this will lead us into greater worship and deeper devotion today. Do you pray that with me? Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, Please open our hearts, open our minds, help us receive from you. Even if things are hard for us to hear, hard for us to put into practice, may your spirit help us. We know you are here and you are powerful, you are mighty to save even today, so we pray that you would do that, awaken our hearts to the glory of your cross once again this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In what we studied last week, Peter took the ideas that we've been talking about, about being sojourners on earth and we're subject and yet free, and Peter got very specific, applying them to Christians who were servants or slaves. And we read this in verse 18. It said, Servants... 
Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, those verses are not a defense of slavery. We dealt with that concern last week. But the central theme here was that believers are to be ready to endure suffering that we don't deserve. We are to be ready to endure suffering that we don't deserve. And we can do this mainly, we saw, by being mindful of God and His eternal perspective. So we have to remember that in, in the grand scheme of things, any suffering we face now is actually short and small. And we have to keep in mind that God cares now, and God will judge and reward then. And why should we be ready to endure unjust suffering? Peter says, because this is a gracious thing. A gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He repeats that in verse 20. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So when we patiently endure hostility, what this is saying is that we will receive gracious grace from God, abundant grace from God. And we get the opportunity then to show abundant grace to others around us, other ill-deserving people who hurt us. And thus we live out the grace of our calling in Christ, how we're meant to live. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's where we ended last Sunday. That's where we're going to pick it up now. Same passage, same verse. It might seem like a, a tangent on Jesus' suffering is a bit out of place. Right? In the middle of talking about authorities and households and servants and masters and submission, what does the cross have to do with being subject to authorities and then enduring unjust suffering? Actually, everything. It has everything to do with these things. The gospel should transform everything about us and our lives, including this. Far from being irrelevant, Christ's sacrificial death lies at the heart of everything Peter has to say. The, the gospel really should provide uh, the incentive, the inspiration, and the reward to all that we do. Now, verses 18 to 20 talked about the undeserved suffering that we may go through in life. Verse 21 down to 25, the end of the chapter, talks about the undeserved suffering that Jesus went through in his life and death. So Peter compares what we might experience with what Jesus experienced for us. And the first major point we'll see from these verses is that Jesus' undeserved suffering is our example. Okay, Jesus' undeserved suffering is our example. Again, verse 21, read one more time, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, I am the oldest child in a large family, and I distinctly remember the day my mom took me aside as the oldest and explained to me that I was naturally setting an example for my younger siblings. That they looked up to me and that they would often follow in my steps, good or bad. And, so, and I remember this because this added a lot of weight to my actions, right? It made me more aware of my influence and my example that I was setting. Romans 8 and Hebrews 2 talk about Jesus actually becoming our older brother. He's the firstborn among many brothers. And so in that, he is the firstborn in the spiritual family in which we are adopted into. But as our older brother, we also know that he has set us an impeccable example of how to live. 
and die. An impeccable example. Now, the word that Peter uses for example specifically referred to patterns that were to be traced. Early on in school, when you learned how to write your letters, you may have used a paper with a dotted outline of a letter or a shadow of a letter, and then you had to trace over that letter and then write it out on your own following that down the line. The Greeks did similar, but they used full sentences that contained every letter of the alphabet. So kind of like our, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Right? It contains every letter of the, alf- the alphabet. Children were supposed to, to carefully trace over the whole line, and in that way they learned their ABCs, or rather their alpha-beta gammas. <laughs> but this is the picture that Peter's alluding to here. And Karen Jobes explains that this picture suggests the closest of copies. English words such as example, model, or pattern are too weak, for Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model, as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. Peter has another vivid word picture at the end of verse 21, that we're to follow in his steps. And you might imagine a, an experienced guide telling you to follow my steps carefully as they try to lead you, show you how to cross a stream or to traverse a narrow path or something. They're showing you where to, to step, where to put your feet. But with Jesus, of course, there were actual steps that he walked on his way to Calvary. The message paraphrases this verse as, Christ suffered everything that came his way so that, you could, so that you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. And that's a great way to put it. Really, Jesus charted the course, he set the pace, he, he blazed the trail, and all along the way he was telling us that suffering like this could be endured. And it could be done. And then he was showing us how to do it, where to place our steps. Now, I have visited Jerusalem before and walked the Via Dolorosa, the path of suffering, retracing Jesus' alleged steps from his trial to the place that he'd be crucified. That is not what Peter's talking about here. He wasn't encouraging pilgrimage to go and to retrace Jesus' physical steps. He was encouraging us to be ready to suffer retracing Jesus' spiritual steps that he took to the cross. We might wonder, was Peter saying that we we should suffer and die just like Jesus did? And the answer is no even if some believers would face similar fates. But Peter knew, he did know that the believers would often face suffering in this life. We'd face hatred, we'd face hostility, and unjust suffering at that. So we may not be crucified, but the circumstances surrounding our suffering may in fact resemble Jesus's. People may hate us as they hated him. It may seem completely unfair, or it may lead to humiliation, mockery, pain, or worse. Just like Jesus. And as followers of a mocked and murdered Messiah, we must be ready to imitate the cross. It doesn't mean we go out looking for trouble. It also means we don't purposely avoid it. And that when it does come, we're ready. Ready to take up our cross and follow Jesus no matter what the cost. To be patient when people just don't understand what we believe. To to take risks of being rejected or disliked for the sake of the gospel. 
to be gracious even when we are teased or belittled or falsely accused. To be okay with mistreatment from those around us. This is what it looks like to imitate Christ's example or to trace over his pattern. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ also suffered for you. For us. Even though we were the ones who deserved to suffer. And Jesus didn't deserve anything that happened to him between his betrayal and his burial. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This shows how brutally undeserved the cross was. He committed no sin. Now, there have been plenty of innocent victims in our world. Right, people who didn't deserve to suffer or die in the way that they did. But there has never been another sinless victim. In other words, someone who didn't just deserve not to be crucified, but someone who deserved to have nothing bad ever happen to them. Jesus, from the day he was born, committed no sin. That means not one evil thought, not one inappropriate word, not one regrettable act. Therefore, Christ's suffering was the most undeserved suffering ever, even imaginable. Now, Peter may have been implying that we should follow Jesus' example to not sin while suffering. But he wouldn't have been saying that we must be sinless like Jesus, because that's impossible. Peter's main thrust was that, that Jesus suffered more unjustly than you ever will. Therefore, we shouldn't shrink away from a bit of injustice every now and then. we read verse 22, you might have thought, well, why, does, why single out deceit among the sins that he was innocent of? Right? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Karen Jobes speculates that perhaps Peter began to describe the suffering servant as a model for Christian behavior with these particular phrases, because when people are treated unjustly, it is most tempting to respond by stretching the truth, putting our opponents in a bad light, speaking abusively or others, or making threats. So, deceit is a particular temptation when we are hurting. That's true. But the main reason that Peter says what he does here is that he's quoting from somewhere else. Isaiah 53, to be exact. A well-known prophecy was given several centuries before this. But as the apostles in the early church observed Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection, they, they quickly realized that Jesus was the exact fulfillment of these ancient prophecies. Here in 1 Peter Peter creatively weaves Isaiah 53 into this passage to describe Jesus' suffering. There are at least five, maybe as many as eight, references to Isaiah 53 in these five verses. Peter uses the the same language. However, he doesn't go in the same order that Isaiah goes. Peter follows the sequence of what happened in Jesus' passion from his trial to the crucifixion. Verse 22, we just read quotes from Isaiah 53, 9. It says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And that framed his suffering. Jesus wasn't a wicked man, or a violent man, or a deceitful man, but... He died like one. So the question becomes, if we're to follow Jesus' example, what does his example 
look like? What things should it inspire in us? I think there are two things we can quickly note here. First, Jesus' undeserved suffering is our example of enduring. Of enduring. This goes back to what Peter wanted from us in verse 19 and 20. He says, Sir, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Then in verse 21, right after, Jesus is setting the example of this, which would include endurance. And so, when you and I go through hard times, we need to take heart, we need to take courage. Now hear me, to endure doesn't mean to not hurt, it doesn't mean to not feel, it doesn't mean to not cry, it doesn't mean to not bleed. To endure means going through all of that and coming out the other side. To endure means to not give in or give up. If someone is hostile towards you because you were good, like verse 20 described, it it means that you don't let them keep you from continuing to do good. You don't let them stop you. It It means you don't stop praising Jesus. You don't stop sharing your faith. You don't stop loving your neighbor. Enduring means that you don't give in to pressure to compromise or contradict your faith. And enduring also means that we never stoop to the level of our opponents and start treating them in kind. Hatred for hatred, hostility for hostility, evil for evil. We, see, we clearly see Jesus set this example in verse 23. Look with me. It says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is an allusion to Isaiah 53, 7, which says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Picture in your mind, if you will, when the Sanhedrin sentence, they decided Jesus should die. And Mark says, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy! And picture the crowd roaring to Pilate, crucify him! Crucify him! Picture him being handed over to the mercy of the Roman soldiers who clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Picture the mockery Jesus heard even as he hung on the cross. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Then think of how Jesus defended himself and put them all in their place. Wait. He didn't. He was silent. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't retaliate. He didn't even threaten to get eaten. When we are verbally attacked by other people, our first inclination is to defend ourselves. And if we can't do that, it's so easy to start attacking our attackers. Calling their character or motives into question or or resorting to ad hominem attacks. If we're going to take Jesus' example seriously, we must choose to respond in other ways. If we respond at all. Sometimes it's better to be silent altogether. We wonder, how could Jesus stay silent in the face of such evil? And the answer is there right in verse 23. And it's the other aspect of Jesus' example I think we need to emulate. He says, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus' undeserved suffering is our example of entrusting. Entrusting. Instead of reviling back, instead of threatening, instead of seeking revenge, Peter says that Jesus continued entrusting himself to his Father. Those are the, the alternatives. We either fight back or we entrust. Every time that we fight back or try to get revenge or, to, fight, or to, to try to question other people to put the ball back in their court. This is a case of not trusting God. And if God could be trusted in the midst of the harshest, most inhumane, unmerited abuse ever, how could we ever imagine that he would be untrustworthy in the midst of our pain? You might start to think, well, Jesus died. Right? God didn't come through for him. That's the end of the story. Come back next week. For, Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. Jesus' trust was well placed, even though that situation led to his death. See, believers... Suffering doesn't mean that God is displeased with them or that the gospel is untrue. We have to trust God. We can trust God even in those times, even in the times that we most think we can't. And Jesus proved that. We can commit our souls to him, trusting that he does know what's best for us and others, and we can pray and take comfort in the fact that it is our God is the one who judges justly, as Peter says. Therefore, let's entrust him with everything. Our health, our security, our livelihood, our body and mind, heart, emotions, our loved ones and their well-being, our future, our destinies. Jesus was vindicated, and his people shall be as well. Jesus' suffering gives us a, really, it's a challenging, it's a powerful example to imitate. However, what would you say if I told you that everything I've said so far today is moot if you don't first have Jesus as your Savior? It's true. If you seek to follow Jesus' example in life but haven't had your sins forgiven by him, you will waste your life running on a hamster wheel, going nowhere, growing nowhere. You and I simply cannot live up to his standard. We can't do it. 
We need his saving power. And see, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus' suffering gives us an example to follow. But there's something even more wonderful about it. It saves us from when we can't follow it. And when we don't follow it, it saves us from that. Because of his suffering, we are given Jesus' righteousness and we are empowered to grow in Christ's likeness. Here's how I put the point that we'll see in the next verse. Jesus' undeserved suffering gives and grows our righteousness. Jesus' undeserved suffering gives us and grows our righteousness, our Christ-likeness. Look how powerfully Peter says, it's in verse 24. Says, he himself, still speaking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So, Christ himself bore our sins. He himself bore our sins. He didn't put this unbearable task on anyone else's shoulders. And he bore our sins, which scholars believe carries two connotations, both bearing our sins on the cross and also carrying the burden of sin to the cross. Think of his agony in Gethsemane or his faltering, stumbling steps to Calvary. This is a, a quote from Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. As we sang, buried he carried my sins far away. My sin, your sins, he bore our sins, the sins of all mankind. And he bore, it says, in his body. Which means that he physically felt the weight of sin. His body felt excruciating pain. His mind felt unbearable, unimaginable guilt and forsakenness. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree is just a nickname for the cross. But Peter uses tree intentionally. He knew that the law placed a curse on anyone who was killed as a criminal by being hung on a tree. And so Christ took the curse of God on himself, facing God's justice for our crimes. This is the gospel. This is the good news, that, that we can now be saved because Christ did this. God's word describes what happens when we believe and we follow Jesus with our lives. It says that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Which means that when Jesus died, we might as well have died with him. That's how closely we're linked to him. We are saved because his death becomes our death. And his life becomes our life. As Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. One of the most major reasons that Christ suffered and died was to transform us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that... We might die to sin and live to righteousness. On one level, this has already happened for believers. We already died and now live. On another level, though, this is something that is continually happening in us. To use Paul's language from Romans 6, we must consider or reckon ourselves, see ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We do this by killing sin daily and by offering our bodies as instruments for righteousness. So, our sin was nailed to the cross with Christ. It's dead. But we're also to keep putting it to death. Telling it to go to hell where it belongs. Because Christ already carried it there. 
Do you realize that your Christian life is not just some moseying, meandering, listless journey to heaven? It is war. It's war. It's a, it's a matter of life and death, of dying to an old life and living a new life. I wonder, are you taking your sin seriously? Are you taking it easy on your sin? Are you thinking that you'll just eventually grow out of them? Or are you dying to sin, killing, killing your, your greed for higher paychecks or a nicer retirement? Are you dying to your addiction to pornography? What would that look like? Are you killing sexual immorality no matter what it costs? How about anger or rage? Are you dying to your desire for revenge? Killing your bitterness, your unforgiveness. This is why Christ died. So that you and I would also die. But also it says so we would live. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. On the flip side of that, I wonder, are you living to righteousness? Godly, holy behavior. Are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, are these things growing to define who you are? Is compassion growing in you? Graciousness toward others. Submission to authority. Are you studying Christ's exemplary life and then seeking to imitate what you see? see? See, Christ's death provides not only the forgiveness of sin, but also the power to then live for righteousness. It does both. And we can do this now because, Peter says, by his Wounds, you have been healed. Healed from our deadly condition and from sin's curse. There's some really strong irony here, right? We are healed by wounds. Saved by scars. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah foretold this would happen. Peter actually saw it happen. Now he's telling us. The background of this whole picture was the sacrificial system that God gave to Israel. All all sin called for death. That was its penalty. If we didn't die, something else had to. And so sheep and, sheep and goats and bulls or the like would be sacrificed to God, killed and offered to God as a sacrifice. And that graphically demonstrated a transfer of sin from a person to a substitute. By the wounds or the death of sacrifices, a guilty sinner could be seen as forgiven. But then Jesus came along and revealed that these sacrifices, while serving as a constant reminder of sin's gravity and penalty, they never actually solved the problem. Hebrews 10.4 concludes, It's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. We need a better substitute, a more perfect one, and a human one who could actually take our place. And therefore, Jesus came as the Lamb of God, being wounded and crushed as a sacrifice. And as Peter said earlier in the book, we are now ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish 
or spy. Praise the Lord. There's a fascinating bit on a, a Planet Earth 2 documentary that we were watching recently. On an island off the coast of East Africa, there's a quite an amazing tree called the Pisonia tree. And in these trees, there are some seabirds that always nest in these trees. Every year, they come back and they nest there. But this tree has seeds that are coated with hooks or thorns, just coated with them. And as the baby birds, the fledgling birds, they grow up, the seeds get stuck on the birds' feathers. And then as the birds fly off, they end up scattering the seeds all over the place. They spread the trees, even to other islands. But if a bird, as they're growing up, falls to the ground, it'll often get completely covered with the seeds. It'll get so entangled and encumbered by them that it can't fly, and it will die. However, this is the amazing part. As the bird dies, it provides perfect fertilizer for the seeds. And the trees will actually grow up out of the decaying bird's body. And I thought this is similar to what Christ's death does for our growth in righteousness. His death provides the conditions, the the fertilizer, the roots in which we can grow. His body was severely wounded, torn by whips and thorns, pierced by nails and stakes. And it died, and we, as the people of God, then grow up out of his body to live for righteousness. The major difference, though, is that Yes, a death is at the roots of a tree, but a dead Savior isn't. Right? Instead, there is a resurrected, reigning Savior at the top of the tree. <laughs> and he is right now caring for us, protecting us, leading us as our Lord. Uh, see, the cross proves his love. The empty grave then proves his power to protect us and lead us. And that's the final thing we're going to see from this chapter. One more thing that Jesus' suffering does for us. Jesus' undeserved suffering returns us to God's care and leadership. Jesus' undeserved suffering returns us to God's care and protection, his authority and leadership. Look how Peter says this. In the end of verse 24, By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So before Christ, we were wandering like wandering sheep. Does that sound familiar again? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if you don't know much about sheep, sheep are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. <laughs> Among other dumb habits, sheep have a tendency to wander away from the safety of the flock. They just naturally wander. They must think something like, oh, that looks like nice grass. Oh, that looks like nice grass too. And before you know it, they've wandered around the bend and gotten themselves hopelessly lost. This is what we are like on our own when left to our sin. We follow every tasty morsel we see. And we get ourselves hopelessly lost. And just like the sheep, that ends up in deadly peril. There are precipices that we could fall down. There are predators that could eat us up. Thankfully, though, we have a shepherd. A good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. And when he died, when he did this, laying his life down, he rescued all those who would choose to follow him. And he lovingly guides us back to the safety of the pen and the flock and his care. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now remember here, Peter's been talking a lot about the human authorities over us. Right? But now he reminds us, if Jesus is our Savior, he's also our shepherd and our overseer. Which means he is our, that, our, that our highest authorities in life are not the, the government, they're not employers. Our highest authority, our ruler, our king, our Lord is Christ. And we are now back under his authority and leadership. So, if you have returned to Christ by his sacrifice, what this is saying is then you need to to follow him. You need to do what he says. He's your shepherd. He's your overseer. Even if that's showing grace to those you hate to show grace to. Even Even if that's killing a sin that you prefer not to kill, if we're being honest. Even if that's suffering patiently waiting for the Lord's return. We can trust him until then. Because as our shepherd, he'll care for us, even in sorrow or pain. He'll lead us through the valley of the shadow of death and out the other side. The Lord promises as much in Ezekiel. Listen to this passage. The Lord says, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that has been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them. I will feed my people in justice. Karen Jobes encourages us that walking in Jesus' footsteps, even through unjust suffering, is nevertheless the shepherd's path of safety, protection, and deliverance. But how comforting is it to know that no matter what others may do to us here on earth, they are not the ones who control our souls or our destinies. It says Jesus is the overseer of our souls. Let me ask you, are you straying today? Are you wandering? Maybe you've never not been straying, or you're straying again. So can I encourage you today? As this said, Christ also suffered for you. He bore your sins in his body on the tree, and by his wounds you can be healed. Won't you return today? Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, return to your shepherd. Stop wandering off on your own. Come back under his care and his leadership. Return to him. With everything that Jesus went through for us, how could we ever resist his love? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. But far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen to you. Oh, sorry. I just jumped back a few years in Peter's thought. To before the cross and resurrection, you know that it was Peter 
who is most fiercely opposed to Jesus' suffering. He thought it was ridiculous. And I'm pretty sure that most of us would prefer to live by that earlier mantra, right? (laughs) Far be it from us, Lord. May that this shall never happen to us. Keep suffering far away from us. But when Peter actually watched God's plan take place, it changed everything for him. Before, Jesus' suffering was ludicrous in his mind. Now, it was everything. It's everything. The words that Peter spoke at this point in First Peter, would eventually become very personal for him. Tradition tells us that Peter died by crucifixion under the reign of Nero, but that when he objected that he was unworthy to die in the same way Jesus had, the soldiers obliged and flipped him upside down. Whether or not that's completely accurate, we do know that Peter followed in his Savior's footsteps. He followed him in life, followed him in death, and he certainly followed him into glory. And so when we now look back on the cross of Christ, we get a glimpse of our calling as his people. We, too, are called to follow him in life and in death and in glory. And by his grace, we will. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, sometimes in our days it's hard to see the grand picture. It's hard to live with that long look to glory. We get caught up in the here and now. Please open our eyes, God. Help us to see. Help us endure. And help us entrust ourselves to you. For you are good. You're the good shepherd. And we thank you for laying down your life for us. May you receive the honor that you're due from our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.